A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we're live at the historic summit in Brussels. We examine and analyse the state of the cyber war, and we share a special Christmas request with you, our listeners. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 15th of December, one year and 294 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and Telegraph business and tech reporter Gareth Caulfield. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David. An extraordinary 24 hours in the political sphere. Deadlock. That was the state of the fraught discussions between Hungary's Viktor Orban and senior European Union leaders yesterday in Brussels after three intense hours of discussion where the pro-Ukrainian caucus, including many of the world's most powerful leaders, at least certainly in Europe, sought to persuade one of Putin's few allies left in the EU to grant the necessary unanimity for Ukraine's accession talks to formally begin. Now, a joint Thursday breakfast discussion with Germany's Olaf Scholz, French President Emmanuel Macron, EU Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen with Viktor Orban showed the first signs of a fracturing in the Hungarian position as he apparently struggled to provide plausible arguments for his claim that Ukraine suffered from rule of law defects that left it unready for accession talks to join the EU. But still, he had made it clear he would not back the move, which meant that all of this, all that prep seemed for naught. Then, suddenly, Schultz conceived an ingenious compromise. He proposed to Orban that he grab a coffee outside the room for a few minutes. If he really wasn't willing to agree to opening talks, he could leave allowing the 26 EU leaders who remained to approve Ukraine's road to accession with the required unanimity, which EU rules say is also fulfilled if one leader is absent. So Auburn was able to leave and could say that he hadn't voted in favour, but the required unanimity went forward. So that's exactly what happened. And this is a move that has never occurred apparently before in the bloc's history. And thus, when all seemed lost in just one moment, one decision, everything changed. And after a few minutes of voting, Ukraine's path to beginning those accession talks, so long hanging in the balance, was unanimously, sorry, unanimously approved. Such is diplomacy, small rooms, large egos and the fate of nations. Now, Joe Barnes is going to talk in more detail shortly about what exactly has been agreed and not agreed at that meeting. And there are still many stumbling blocks, key faces. But suffice to say, this is a hugely symbolic moment for the Ukrainians, a formal recognition at last that they are closer to the European family and one 
day may well join the European Union. Given that a core motivation for this war was Russia trying to stop Ukraine's tilt westwards, it marks a significant blow for that ambition. But for more detail on those extraordinary events, I recommend checking out the Politico coverage of the last 24 hours. They spoke to officials who were in the room, hence how we know exactly what occurred. But before we turn to those events in more detail, let's just quickly look at the front lines. We've learned more about the attacks on Kyiv yesterday. Russia appears to have fired a salvo of hypersonic missiles in what is a rare daytime attack. So Ukrainian television channels reported shortly after 2 p.m. that six missiles have been fired on the country after the end of Putin's call-in press conference, almost certainly deliberately timed. Now, two explosions were reported in Kyiv by the AFP news agency and independent Russian outlet Medusa, which said that the strikes also hit an airbase 150 miles to the west. As a testament to just how far the Ukrainians have come in their air defence, no one was killed. It seems that there was successful operations to deflect those operations or at least to prepare the public for the likelihood of them occurring. Now, in other news, the Institute for the Study of War are reporting Russian forces conducted another series of drone and missile strikes against port infrastructure in southern Ukraine on the nights of the 13th and 14th. The Romanian Ministry of Defence also noted that one drone fell on an uninhabited area near Grindu, a small settlement in Romania on the Ukraine-Romania border. So things are still rather hot where Roland was a few weeks ago. Now, lastly, in this military segment, drone footage reportedly taken from Western Zaporizhia Oblast shows Russian forces using Ukrainian prisoners of war as human shields in an apparent violation, yet another, of international humanitarian law. This is coming from Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, who stated on the 13th of December that it received drone footage from Ukraine that shows Russian soldiers covering themselves behind Ukrainian POWs as they advance on Ukrainian positions near Robotone. Now, the Ukrainian POWs in the video appear unarmed, while the Russian soldiers force them forward at gunpoint. And at some point, a Russian soldier fires at and apparently kills the Ukrainian POW as the POW tries to run away. Now, the Ukrainian Prosecutor General's Office has initiated criminal proceedings on this violation of laws and customs of war based on the video. To be clear, the Geneva Conventions prohibit the use of protected persons as human shields to protect against attacks or prevent reprisals during an offensive. And POWs are specifically classified as protected persons under said international law. So that's where we are in the military sphere. But there are some more political updates after Joe covers in more detail the extraordinary events of yesterday, which, by the way, Joe, credit to him, predicted. I remember a couple of uh, weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about this very question and I asked Joe point blank whether he thought, put him on the spot, whether eventually after the wrangling that Viktor Orban would grant the talks. And he said, yes, it was looking very dicey, but he was correct. So credit where credit's due, Joe. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Francis Durney. Joe Barnes, you're on the ground in Brussels. You're at this meeting. What can you tell us about how uh, yesterday and today unfolded? Wow, yeah, superb coverage, uh, Francis. You put me out of a job, sir. But yeah, and I recommend reading our coverage as well as Politico's. It's uh, much better. So I think the headline news is, yes, the membership offer, but that is sort of a decades in the making process. So the sort of the real headline, I think, from the talks last night was Viktor Orban blocked what was a 50 billion euro aid package to Ukraine and then threatened to derail Ukraine's EU ambitions in the future. So talks over this economic assistance deal dragged into the early hours of this morning, a summit we can call tense, fraught, tumultuous. And basically that aid, which is worth 17 billion euros in grants and 33 billion euros in loans for the next four years, is increasingly seen as vital for Ukraine's war-stricken economy because Joe Biden's and the US's own $60 billion aid package is also delayed. And as we covered, so Orban did fail to block a decision formally to open Ukraine's membership uh, negotiations. Also, it was announced it was Moldova would be granted a session talks and Georgia would become a candidate to join the EU. So let's look into what Orban was really trying to achieve. So he's got a great 
and long history of using clashes with the EU for domestic political gain. He confirmed he came out and blocked the aid package, which is actually, and it has created some criticism for the European Commission because they bundled that in a wider top-up of the EU's budget, which basically contains extra money for defence, migration and sort of other domestic EU issues rather than the geopolitics of supporting Ukraine. Viktor Orban essentially blew his cover and said the reason he was blocking it is because he believes that the EU still owes him money. Before the summit, the Commission announced that it would free 10 billion euros in funds which were frozen and, and withheld from Budapest over fears of an erosion of democracy and rule of law in the country. But Hungary is arguing that there's actually 20 billion more that needs to be given. And EU leaders are going to reconvene in January, we believe, for another summit and another attempt to get this budget deal going. So what else happened? So yeah, as I said, the due to re uh, return to Brussels in January, early next year. Actually, most people are quite confident that this deal would get over the line. And if they didn't, they acknowledged Mark, Mark Rutter of the Netherlands, Leo Varadkar. Various people said, look, we will do it on our own as an intergovernmental agreement rather than an EU level with, with Hungary involved. But yeah, let's look, at, let's look at more of the details of this meeting and Olaf Scholz and his really interesting, fascinating intervention that he has made. Because Olaf Scholz, one of the criticisms of him since taking over the reins of German Chancellor, is he has never replaced the political heft of Angela Merkel, who was seen as a brilliant negotiator, wheeler, dealer, someone who knew how to really work the room in Brussels on other international meetings. So they had basically been talking for, I think... I'm going to eight hours maybe. And Viktor Orban had basically been trying to convince EU leaders that Ukraine didn't deserve to start a session talks. And they, um, that because they were corrupt, they hadn't met any of the reforms demanded of them, etc. But yeah, the, um, what was interesting was that obviously no one, every of the 26 other EU leaders said, no, look, we don't buy it, Victor. You're not, you're not gonna, you're not gonna do it. And so, on the sidelines, Olaf Scholz grabbed, and this is a, speaking to diplomats and officials in the room, in the meeting, grabbed Victor Orban and said, look, come on, let's go and have a, let's go and have a discussion. I think you, as Francis said, should step out, go for a coffee, go have some alone time. And what we'll do in the meantime is we will vote as 26 EU governments to allow the talks. And then you will be able to come back into the room and say, look, I didn't support, I didn't vote in favour for this move. And surprisingly, not so for seasoned EU watchers. Um, so unsurprisingly, Victor Orban eventually folded and said, you know what, I'm not going to convince you to change your mind, so I am just going to let you put this through. And it is the first time this so-called constructive absence has been used by EU leaders in the history of European Council meetings. And that was a very excited uh, Jan Wirt, a veteran journalist covering EU affairs, and he's written several books on the European Council itself as an institution. He um, ticked up in a sort of a shared signal group that we all have amongst journalists saying, look, guys, it's the first time I can assure you. So, yeah, really interesting. And, and the idea is actually has sort of given, given Olaf Scholz and Plaudit. So um, Vladimir Zelensky came out and said, look, I thank Chancellor Scholz for his personal efforts and Germany for its leadership. Inside the meeting... Mark Rutter, the Dutch Prime Minister, said, I can tell a political move when I see one. Olaf pulled it off. But yeah, look, but just despite the celebrations and like, and people are genuinely really happy about this. It was spoken about as historic. Ursula von der Leyen said it was a really important strategic move to get Ukraine closer because basically the reforms that the EU requires to join also help Ukraine secure more private sector investment, more international investment from other people because it basically shows that they can be trusted to do business with. Yeah, but despite that celebratory mood in Brussels over the decision, Mr. Orban then came out and threatened that he could still derail the process. He um, he posted in a social media video while the leaders were in the room doing this and he was off for his coffee. He said, Hungary is not modifying its position, but 26 member states were adamant this decision must be made. So Hungary decided that if 26 decide so, they should go on their own path. Hungary does not wish to participate in this bad decision. Then in an interview with the um, Hungarian state broadcaster this morning, the state radio station, Victor Orban said he would have about 75 occasions to block Ukraine's accession to the bloc. He was going through and basically saying, look, the Hungarian parliament can do it at this, this and that stage, whatever. 
But the first real time that they will get to do that is in March next year, when there is a proposed a proposed decision, a proposed review on whether Ukraine has made progression fulfilling and doing the homework that the European Commission has asked it to do. And um, but quite quite interestingly, um, despite them getting the news, a lot of people were pissed off. Oh, sorry, angered with Viktor Orban. I shouldn't use such diplomatic language, but that was one one phrase that was said to me. But what was quite funny was Alexander de Croo, the Belgian Prime Minister. He said, "If you are part of a decision, you agree with the decision, or afterwards you just keep your mouth shut." So basically, EU leaders were telling Viktor Orban to to pipe down after um, and make his opposition less vocalised than it currently is. And I will stop there. Do you have any questions? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Joe. That's really fascinating. It must be quite something being, well, I, I guess, sort of next to the room when this is happening. Were you working through the night then? Like, how, how did that work? And when, when did you first hear that, that, um, that, or, that, of this ploy by Schultz? So the deal came around 7, 8 o'clock Brussels time. So that was when it was announced, but so the, 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 it would have just happened shortly. The ploy would have happened shortly before that. But yeah, look, it's, it's, it's sort of fascinating. The talks went through to the very early hours. I, because of the nature of print deadlines, went to bed earlier than that and then woke up to pick it up in the morning, which is, say, quite great. I, I remember during some of the great long Brexit summits, I stayed up through the night with journalists sort of sleeping on tables while, um, while I... Uh, was covering and feeding the beast that is online journalism at times. But, you know, look, it's fascinating. It's a really interesting thing to do. And, yeah, and constantly what, what we're doing is we're seeing history in the making. We're seeing Ukraine move to this more transatlanticist outlook. It's cemented itself as a European nation rather than the Russian nation that Russia wanted it to be. And it's basically pointed its direction. It is with Europe, is with the West, not Russia and the sort of the former Soviet Union countries that want to be in that sphere, like Belarus, for instance. So yeah, look, it's it fascinating. Obviously, lots of lots of happy Ukrainians. They were really proud and excited of the news, um, and it's, it's a real boost for them at times. Because like, yes, things are hard on the front line. Yes, things like these missile campaigns and stuff with Russia, it does get people down. Like we we obviously treat it as news at times, but yeah, you've got to remember like lots of real world impacts and on on the morale of Ukrainians at times. So it's just another one of those things that really just adds to their sort of fighting spirit, which is good news for them. Absolutely. One more question from me, Joe. From what you're saying, it seems as if we won't hear the last of Viktor Orban and his recalcitrance on the Ukraine issue. Is that what you're thinking? I mean, you, you said, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities next year for the, for this issue to keep on coming back. Yeah, look, and as well, joining the EU isn't a quick process. And actually, Austria, as I mentioned yesterday, they spoke out about fast tracking Ukraine's EU accession, so they want it done by the book. And actually, no one's really arguing for Ukraine to not follow the normal procedure. So look, this could take, the ambition is to get it done by 2030, but lots of other countries have been negotiating to join for much longer, mainly Turkey, which the process started in the 1980s and is still going on today, technically. So it will again have to be ratified by the Hungarian parliament at various stages and the Hungarians will vote it down. I guess one of the hopes is that Viktor Orban eventually um, loses power in Hungary or decides to remote, remarkably change his position. But we never know what happens happens with that yet. But yeah, I, look, this is going to take decades. It's going to, Viktor Orban is going to constantly try and stifle and frustrate the pro- process. But actually, when it comes to push comes to shove, and they're actually really deciding on like how much money is going to go to Ukraine in terms of cohesion funding, which is essentially the EU's levelling up fund, how much is going to go in cultural agri- common agricultural policy funds, so farming funds to Ukraine, which is a massive industrial farming nation. So look, there's going to be lots of hard decisions. So it won't just be Viktor Orban speaking up at times. But uh, yeah, we've not heard the last of him. Don't worry. Absolutely. Joe, how, how does the rest of your day look? Are you able to get a bit more sleep or is there still lots of reporting to be done? Still reporting to be done. We're, uh, the, the summit goes on. Hopefully it will, well, it will end today as planned. There was rumours that the EU leader is going to be locked in the room until Saturday to get the Ukraine decisions over the line. But yeah, they've decided to abandon abandon the talk on the 50 uh, billion aid package in favour of bringing back those talks for January. Yeah, so I'm going to be looking out. There's some Israel, Middle East, Gaza discussions, a bit on defence. We're, we're looking at will the EU sanction what it calls extremist Israeli settlers in the West Bank? Will there be more sanctions on Hamas, as the British government and American governments have been doing? And what is the language going to be around the ceasefire? So yeah, lots, lots of interesting topics, but not Ukraine-focused from now on. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Joe. It's really great to hear from you. Thank you for all your reporting over the past few days. I know you've got to run and get, get back to the summit. So thank you, Joe, for joining us. Francis, you've got a few more updates for us. 
Yes, thank you, David. Just a few other political ones before I give an announcement to listeners. So Ben Farmer has written a detailed look for us at The Telegraph about the latest on the Wagner mercenary group, which has earned at least two billion pounds, about two point five billion dollars for the Kremlin from the African gold trade since the invasion of Ukraine, according to new research estimates. We've spoken in the past about how Wagner is the Kremlin's de facto representative on much of the continent, earning billions from murky gold investments to help bankroll Putin's assault. The Blood Gold Report by a research team led by the African-European relations expert Jessica Berlin, someone who will be well known to anyone following this war on social media, as hers is one of the most impassioned voices on the subject there, accuses the group of generating more than £80 million a month in the Central African Republic, Sudan and Mali. They said the group operated differently in each country, but had drawn up a general playbook for exploiting unstable African nations. And in each case, Wagner had approached authoritarian leaders, offered security assistance to prop them up in return for access to the profits of the gold industry. Now, this won't come as a surprise to listeners. We've talked about this several times in the past, but I mention it here because anyone who is really following this closely will want to read that report. Now, Another subject we've talked about in the past, also worthy of updating listeners on whenever we can, is the BBC have looked deeper into the question of Russian propaganda campaigns on social media. So they claim to have uncovered a Russian campaign involving thousands of fake accounts on TikTok spreading disinformation about the war. Its videos routinely attract millions of views and have the apparent aim of undermining Western support. TikTok have said it's taken down more than 12,000 fake accounts originating in Russia, including nearly 800 uncovered independently by the BBC. The effort appears to have been coordinated, according to the BBC. Sometimes videos were released by different accounts on the same day and featured identical or very similar scripts. And during the investigation, they found consistent circumstantial evidence pointing to a possible Russian origin of the network. This includes linguistic mistakes typical of Russian speakers, including some Russian phrases that are not used in other languages. Some echoes of enigma, if anyone knows what I'm talking about there. Many of the videos analysed by the BBC targeted Mr. Reznikov and, of course, Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials, portraying them as obsessed with money and uncaring about ordinary Ukrainians or the war effort. This is despite the fact, another piece of news, that Ukrainian anti-corruption investigators have raided a 4.4 million euro Spanish villa of a military enlistment chief accused of exploiting his position to earn millions of pounds worth of Money. Personally, Yevhen Borisov, the former head of Odessa's enlistment office, has been under investigation for corruption since July and in pre-trial detention since November, the Kyiv Independent reports. The heads of every regional army enlistment office were, of course, fired by Zelensky in August after a probe prompted by the revelations. And this gentleman could face up to 12 years in prison if found guilty. Further evidence, as I say, if needed, of the anti-corruption work that is ongoing in Ukraine and, of course, is essential to the granting of those accession talks. It's what gave the European Commission the green light to say that Ukraine is doing enough to try and stamp out institutional corruption, which was one of the barriers for Ukraine entering the discussions of future EU membership. Though, as Joe said very much rightly, this is going to take a very long time indeed. This is not a short-term project, but nonetheless, it is symbolically valuable. And just on the question of Russian disinformation, something we've talked about in the cyber context as well today, I do want to return at some point to the question of YouTube and video providers, because anecdotally, there seem to be many videos on Russia-related material, including some of our own, being flagged which means they get taken down for certain users. And many people believe that there are deliberate operations by bots designed to silence or at least to try and reduce the spread of voices deemed unhelpful. It's very hard to prove definitively, but I do find it extremely worrying that so much power can rest on the whims of algorithms and automated flagging systems, etc., that can demonetize videos and take them down for what are inaccurate violations. But that is a debate for another time. And I, I know we've had many listeners write in on this subject. So I'm grateful for that. And I say it would be great to, to do a deeper dive on that at some point. But uh, just got a quick announcement, David, if we've got time. 
Absolutely. Well, just before, just, just very, very quickly, Francis, just before you say that, I mean, to give a very good example of this, listeners may recall, I used to be head of social media here at The Telegraph, and it would be very simple. We go live on Twitter. You, I can see the users listening right now. I can see the, the usernames, the profile pictures, and so on and so forth. Listeners can live react, and all you'd have to do is start spamming, start um, giving thumbs up or laughing face or sad face or whatever. And if you do that enough, that's going to really impact the user experience for everybody else. And that might mean that other people stop listening because it's actually quite unpleasant to listen to something like that when you've got um, loads and loads and loads of um, emojis coming in. I mean, you know, it, it, some of this stuff, it, it, you don't even need bots to do it. It's actually relatively simple. But thank you very much to all of our listeners on the live who are, who are not doing that. Oh, I, do, I do see a few, a few hearts coming through at the moment. Thank you, Jack. Francis, you have an announcement for our listeners. I certainly do. Last year, we were deeply grateful to so many of our listeners who responded to our call to hear your insights and reflections in the form of a short recorded message. We featured voices from all around the world, from Europe, America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Brazil, Japan, you name it. And we want to do the same this year. It's very simple. Just send your recorded voice notes to ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. That's our usual address. By Monday morning, please. That's the 18th. And we'll feature as many as we can in our end of year episodes. In the recording, just let us know your first name and where you're listening from, plus any thoughts you'd like to share with us, and we'll do the rest. And separately, we're also looking to find a way of visualising where and how you listen to Ukraine The Latest. If, so if you can take a photo of where you listen, perhaps on your way to work or on your daily walk, then please share that on Twitter, or X as we have to call it these days, with the hashtag Ukraine The Latest, with a sentence of where the photo was taken and we'll try and reshare it and interact with that. And the dream would really to be have a, a photo of the podcast logo somewhere in there too, but that might get complicated if you listen to us on the same device that you take photographs on. But anyway, we're just trying to find a way of visualising it because at this moment, I'm quite often surprised actually speaking to people, going to events, etc., and talking about Ukraine, how many people still aren't aware that we're continuing, that we're doing this daily podcast. So we want to spread the word. So um, if you can continue to do that, as we know listeners do, we would appreciate it. It matters more than ever now, of course. But also, we just get so many lovely messages from people saying, oh, I listen when I do this and that. It would be nice to have a visual record of that and to be able to also say thanks to you personally. So please do get in touch. Photos, recordings, gratefully received. Thank you. Gareth Caulfield, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming in. I know you've been writing all day as well. Gareth, we brought you in for a bit of a sort of bit of a look back over the past 19 months, 20 months at the world of cyber security, all that kind of stuff that you cover that you're, you're very much in. What's your sort of big, your big take on what you've seen in the, in the cyber domain over, over the past 20 months? Thank you, David. Yes, over the past 20 months then on the cyber side of things, I think what we've seen in total is that cyber, from the Western perspective, has turned out to be a lot less efficient as a a standalone means of waging war or disrupting an enemy than I think a lot of commentators and a lot of academics and and deep thinkers and pontificators uh, were really coming to expect. So, you know, if if you cast your minds back to the outset of the latest Russian invasion last year, everyone was saying, my goodness, there's going to be some sort of big red-button nuclear equivalent moment where there's going to be some sort of devastating cyber blitz as Putin's virtual tanks roll across Ukraine's lawn. And, you know, lots of people were getting very, very excited along those those sort of lines of think tanks and, and theorists and you know, sorts of people like that. I think what the Ukrainian experience has shown us, actually, is that this cyber blitz has actually not really come to pass. Now, I'll temper that by saying, of course, you know, people in Ukraine at the moment are obviously still reeling from the impact of the Kiev star hack this week, which I will come to in a little more detail shortly. But you know, returning to our theme there of looking at the, the cyber picture in Ukraine as a whole and what it has taught us, I suppose a way of sum, summing it up, which is perhaps a little bit tongue-in-cheek, is that it is a pain in the fundament, a pain in the backside. A large pain, a significant pain, and you know, certainly it's one that's capable of turning off the lights, as the residents of Kiev learned in 2014, and disabling phone and internet services, as, as everybody's now learning uh, this week, for, for hours or days at a time. But you know, we've seen since the outset of the physical war, we've seen the, uh, the cyber attacks ebbing and flowing. We've seen Ukraine's defenders, together with their Western assistance, holding out against cyber onslaughts, you know, the intensity of which I don't think we've ever seen before in, in modern military history. This is the first time that we've had a truly cyber battlefield alongside a real-world hot war. 
And I think there's a lot of good instructive lessons that we in the West can learn from the Ukrainian experience here. Now, I'm going to just sort of diverge and talk about the Kiev Star hack this week. We know that this targeted Ukraine's largest mobile phone operator with something in the region of 20 million subscribers, and that it has severely affected Kiev Star's operations at the outset. Reuters reports that there was a, there was a queue of people rushing to connect to Vodafone, Kiev Star's largest competitor. Also, most importantly, millions of Ukrainians depend on phone alerts to warn them of possible, of possible Russian air attacks. So there is a direct real-world component to this hack. It's bad. It's putting people's lives at risk. It is depriving them of access to vital information that can quite literally help them avoid the worst excesses of the Russian war. But to look at, to take a, a sort of slightly more positive-focused view of this, we also know, thanks to the last 20 months of experience, that the impact of these cyber attacks is usually fixed within a matter of days or potentially weeks. We know, you know, casting minds back to 2014, when Russia hacked the uh, part of the power grid feeding Kiev. That was a, a sort of watershed moment. Lots of, lots of important people nodded sagely and said, oh, well, this is, this is terrible. This is a, a new frontier in warfare. Well, yes, but what we in the West have forgotten, and many in Ukraine have not, I know this from, from speaking to, to well-placed sources in the country, uh, is that a few hours after that 2014 hack, the lights came back on. It took a lot of time, it took a lot of effort, it took a lot of energy, a lot of industrial genius, in fact, to restore services quite so quickly. But the point there is that you can, in fact, restore services. Now, we're still seeing headlines coming out of Ukraine saying that the, the Kiev Star hack has knocked out the whole network. It has potentially damaged IT infrastructure, by which I think we mean that vital data on servers has been erased, software has been deleted, you know, vital files have been scrambled or corrupted. From a technical side, I think what we're looking at here is a sort of modified ransomware attack. So those of you who have listened to the cyber prognostications over the last year or are sort of interested in, in the cyber warfare side will know that ransomware is you know, malicious software which is deployed onto a, a target network to scramble the files, to encrypt them, so the ransomware operator can then demand a ransom. Now, if you want to turn that into a weapon, all you do is take away the ability to decrypt afterwards. You just scramble the files full stop and sit back and say, well, there's nothing you can do. All your files are turned to mush, in effect. So what we're looking at here, I mean, there's a, there's a source who spoke from the... Um, sorry, there was a source from the triple SCIP, that's Ukraine's main cyber defense agency, who spoke to Wired magazine, indicating that they believe that you know, people bragging on Telegram are actually linked to Russia's GRU intelligence agency. So these, this is so sources claim, and we must be careful not to put it any higher than that, well-placed sources are claiming that this was directly carried out as a military cyber attack by Russia's armed forces, Russia's military hacking units from the GRU. This is publicly claimed to say on Telegram. The cybersecurity world claims these agencies. This group is known as Sandworm. There's a list about as long as your arm of, in the Western world from cybersecurity companies who track this GRU unit's activities under their own brand names. And I won't go into the diversion on why that is and how frustrating it is to try and keep up with which one's which. But I'm beating around the bush here. I'll come back to my central point. A hallmark of the Ukraine conflict is that the work of agencies such as the SSCIP, the you know, cyber defense guys, has enabled, through the sharing of information, has enabled Western governments to actually unmask Russia's cyber capabilities to um, you know, give us the ability to say, ah, right, we know for certain that Sandworm, that APT-28, that Fancy Bear, Strontium, or you know, whatever all these different nicknames are, are actually one and the same. Now, you know, here in the West, we're used to seeing all sorts of these silly code names. Now, speaking personally, I think we should call a spade a spade here and you know, clearly name our adversaries. And the point of the Ukrainian experience over these last 20 months is that actually now we can. I'm not saying that this is a, a particularly, this is not a scenario you would set up deliberately. You would not throw Ukraine to the firing line just so we can name and shame some Russians. But as a useful side effect of the Russian ongoing Russian cyber assault against Ukraine, we can now do that. We can say, ah, right, the hackers who have taken down our local phone network are, in fact, the GRU. That's just speculation, by the way. We don't know for certain yet. <laughs> um, but, you know, we are in the position where we can start confidently making assessments like that and saying publicly, this is not just some group of cyber criminals who've done this. This is Russia. This is a nation-state attack. This is warfare. 
This is another piece of Russia's digital onslaught. And similarly, you know, it also means that we can start ruling out other countries. I mean, typically, when we talk about cyber attacks, we mention countries such as Iran and North Korea, to an extent China as well. And it's important to us to be able to rule those out and say conclusively, ah, thanks to the intelligence we've gained from Ukraine, thanks to the information shared by the SSCIP and the other organizations in Ukraine that are defending their net- networks, and indeed, you know, directly from the experiences of companies such as Microsoft, such as Amazon, Google, Mandiant, and so on, who are actively involved in helping defend Ukraine's networks day to day, we are able to point the finger and say, we know what you're up to, you can't hide, there is no ability for you to get away from this. So, you know, the nature of cyber warfare until the, until the 2022 invasion is that these state-organized hacking gangs, in effect, have been able to hide behind the shadowy nature of hacking itself. I mean, yeah, to just to sort of paint a picture here as a bit of analogy, a cyber attack, I think, is comparable to being mugged from behind in a dark alleyway. The first you know of it is typically when everything goes very wrong very quickly. Now, your opponent may well have been sizing you up since you were walking down the street under a lamppost, carefree, and perhaps not expecting the worst to happen. But that doesn't disguise the need for you to be able to react instantly to limit the harm. Continuing that then, Ukraine's experiences, I think, over the last 20 months have shown us that it is possible to detect and respond to Russian cyber incursions rapidly and effectively. Uh, you know, earlier, earlier in the conflict, we saw evidence of a hack against a power station being detected and halted in its tracks. That was an attempt to repeat the, I've already mentioned, the, the 2014 power station hack in Kiev. And there was an attempt to replicate that on a wider section of the Ukrainian grid. And that was caught thwarted and then exposed to the world complete with all of the digital fingerprints that were that the ukrainian defenders were able to obtain from that which is quite a helpful thing but there is a, a wider point to be made there about the um, the fingerprinting of these digital criminals because coming back to you know what the west has been able to take from this we've been able to unmask some of the actual individuals involved only this week in fact we saw the uk sanctioning an individual russian hacker and his russian spy agency handler you know the impact of international sanctions is very easy to be cynical about these and to sit back and suggest, oh, well, we've sanctioned him, we've frozen his Western bank accounts and we've blocked him from travelling. And what's, what's the actual impact of that? I had this discussion with, shall we say, people from, a, from an organisation based in Cheltenham. I had this discussion with them and I said to them recently, you know, what are we doing here? What do these sanctions actually achieve? And they said, well, you know, in the short term, perhaps not as much as you might hope for. But when we sanction these Russians, these are usually generalizing here. Typically, your average Russian hacker, your average Russian cyber criminal is a young chap in his sort of early, mid, maybe late 20s, right? He's, he's got a whole lifetime ahead of him, yada, yada, yada. When imposed, these sanctions typically do not fall away very quickly, if at all. So fast forward five or ten years from now, suddenly, Dmitry the hacker, he may want to you know, go straight and to live a quiet life, to raise a family in peace and harmony, Suddenly he finds that he's actually unable to jet out to wherever it is he wants to jet out from because he runs the risk of being arrested en route. He might decide that the economic situation in Russia is actually getting quite bad and he wants to put his money into some sort of safe Western banking or financial institution and suddenly finds he's unable to do that because he's sanctioned. He may even find that his family and his loved ones are similarly unable to avail themselves of travel or financial opportunities in the same way because they are linked, therefore, to a sanctioned person. So over the last 19 months, we've seen similar sort of sanctions applied to individual Russian hackers and showing them that crime really doesn't pay. And I don't beat around the bush here. I don't say that the impact of this is immediate. It's not the same as a dawn raid swooping on them and taking them away in handcuffs. But this is a a slow burn, long-term way that's going to have repercussions for years or decades to come. And that sort of small but measurable impact, I think, is really important. And that is something that we can definitely take from the Ukrainian experience of cyber war, is that it is possible, ultimately, to identify the perpetrators at an individual level and to punish them. And without this exposure of Russian hackers' methods and identities through the cyber war in Ukraine, none of this would have been possible. That's, that, for me, I think, is one of the most important takeaways of the war to date. Yes, the individual hacks themselves are bad. Yes, we see lots of detail being released by Ukraine cyber defenders. We see intelligence being swapped. And on the flip side, we see Russians getting onto Telegram and boasting and bragging about DDoSing this, sorry, distributed denial of service attack, knocking out a website or, you know, stealing personal data and dumping that on a dark web. That is bad. That is objectively bad and it is disruptive and harmful for the people who are subjected to it. But 
Again, every single time they make a cyber blow against Ukraine, they expose a small part of what it is they do and how they do it. And that helps build up an intelligence picture, which the CIP and others have been very, very good at seizing on, capitalising and turning to good effect, passing along to their Western partners and being able to say, hey, in the long run, these guys are really going to regret what they've been up to. Your youthful indiscretions, chaps, are going to follow you for a lifetime here. So, yes, David, I'm afraid that turned into a bit of a monologue there and a, a bit of a diversion down the path of international sanctions. And a little bit more I wanted to say as well, but I wonder if that's a good moment for me to pause and have a sip of tea and re-lubricate my vocal cords. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely the best time. Thank you so much, Gareth. That's really fascinating, just sitting here listening. Um, I'm sure Francis might have questions as well, but just one from me. Um, what do... I mean, right now, 20 months, 19 months uh, into the full-scale invasion, what do you think are the capacities of the, Russia's cyber capabilities? Is it, is it still particularly fearsome? Um, or, or has the threat been blunted? What, what's your take there? I think the Kiev Star hack has shown us that they're very much a real and present threat. It is... <laughs> and this is, this is a trap I've fallen into myself occasionally. It is tempting to see the cyber activity receding into the background and thinking, oh, well, you know, it's not the equivalent of a missile being launched or a bomb being dropped. It's not directly contributing to loss of life. However, as I said at the beginning, the Kiev star hack shows us that the Russians are still highly capable and are able to infiltrate what by any measure at this point is going to be one of the best defended cyber targets on the planet, Crane's main telco, main mobile phone network. So they're still potent. They're still very much there as a present threat. It's not something that we can, or Ukraine can afford to turn its back on and and shrug and say, oh, well, you know, we've seen the worst they've got. There is always more to come. We in the West similarly should not be turning our back on, on the Russians and saying, oh, well, they're a busted flush now. We've seen all their cyber techniques. This is one of those wars that is constantly evolving, innovating, becoming ever craftier in ways of achieving bad effect. So, yeah, they're still a potent force. We know the GRU may well have been behind the Kiev Star hack. Certainly, that's the indications we're beginning to get here now. We know that the FSB, the Overseas Intelligence Agency, has been carrying out operations against the West in the hope of gathering intelligence that can be turned to good effect on the battlefield by Russia. So, yeah, there is still a clear and present danger. There is still a capable threat, and the Russians are learning as they go. They are evolving their attack techniques they are evolving their trade craft i mean at the outset of the war a lot of cyber experts are saying oh oh actually we we thought russia was a bit more advanced than this but it's all a bit sort of bitty basic plodding along 20 months later i'm not so sure that's still the case i think we do still have a very clear advanced adversary who is ruthlessly determined to to fight to digitally fight and to win there david so that's that's my assessment clear and present danger you mentioned there, Gareth, that cyber war perhaps has not lived up to the expectations in the grandiose sense. But do you think it's possible that we're at the teething stage of cyber war in the sense that this conflict is showing what might be conceivably possible and that it's an experimenting phase, sort of like tanks in the First World War before you know, they explode into being hugely pivotal to how the Second World War is fought? Are we at a teething stage or do you think, actually, that we're seeing the extent of what cyber war can achieve? Relatively minor probing attacks that can have an influence, but are not those absolute game changers and decisive outlays that some people predicted in the way that you describe. There's a a philosophical view of the cyber war, which I, I personally subscribe to, is that any kind of cybersecurity activity is basically about raising cost. It's about making it too too expensive, too difficult for your adversary to bother, basically. So, you know, at the very simple end, it might be simple to, you know, pick up a friend's phone and muck around with it and send false emails pretending to be them. How do you deter that? You put a password on the phone. You put a PIN code, you put a face ID or whatever. You scale that up. You go to enterprise-level cybersecurity defences, managed detection and response systems of of varying utility, AI-powered systems to build up a picture of current network activity and to, you know, jump on anything that looks unusual instantly at the point where it occurs rather than perhaps in, a, in an incident log reviewed at the end of the day or at the week. So I think the idea that we're in the infancy is probably not true. I think we've, we've, it's, it's now becoming a more mature field. We are seeing 
a sort of consistent set of what cyber and military folk call TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures. We are seeing that ultimately there's a recognition by the Russians that cyber power has to be integrated into conventional battlefield operations, you know, bombs, guns, and missiles, to have a lasting impact beyond the few days. You know, I mean, current expectation is that Kiev Star returns that hack this week will be able to rebuild its networks to a greater or lesser extent and to restore a level of service to continue. It's not the same as dropping bombs on all of their data centers, which, by the way, Russia actually did at the outset to great effect until the West was able to step in and help. So, yeah, we are, we're seeing a maturing of cyber war. We're seeing an understanding in the West that cyber war is not as potent as it may well have been. It's not this magical big red button you can push to, to make everything stop instantly. We're settling now, I think, into a sort of pattern of life where we know the general features of an attack. We know, broadly speaking, what's going to happen, what the likely outcomes are, what the potential you know, routes of, of entry and so on are going to be. So, yeah, it's maturing. It's growing. We, I, I don't think we're going to see a significant escalation yet. I mean, the Kiev Star hack is bad, but viewed from 30,000 feet... You've compromised one organization, one telephone network. It's not the same as if you had completely wiped out, you know, dropped the equivalent of a neutron bomb and neutralized every electrical device in the country, right? Cyber probably, hopefully, never will be capable of that. So I'm hopeful that this is as bad as it gets, to be honest with you. Well, thank you very much, Gareth, um, for speaking to us. Two two quick things. Gareth, this is your last time on the podcast. Thank you so much for all of your work uh, with us. You'll always be welcome uh, in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your work. I'm sure listeners um, will, will miss your voice and miss your reporting on, on cyber. Do you have any final th- thoughts for us? And what comes next? How can people reach you and follow your journalism in the future? Thanks, David. I'm hopeful that I will I will re- return to the pod. More of that anon. But for the moment, I am on Twitter, obviously, as all of our, our live listeners know, at GazTheJourno. Nice and simple, nice and straightforward. That's G-A-Z TheJourno. I'll continue to write about cyber stuff. I will continue to talk about the interesting cyber stuff. And my plans at the moment include doing a little bit of light blogging about it. So whereas I might have done ruthlessly well-informed telegraph journalism to a very high degree... Sometimes in cyber, it's a very grey feel, and it's nice to have an outlet to just knock down some thoughts and go, oh, that looks interesting, and which I also do a bit of on Twitter as well. So those are my main outlets. I'll also be posting on LinkedIn. I'm under there as my full name, Gareth Caulfield, nice and simple. But <laughs> I hope and I'm fairly confident that this is not the last you'll have heard of me. Like, uh, like James Bond, I will return. Gareth Caulfield, sincerely, thank you so much for all of your work. And just very quickly, have you seen the uh, this the compromat, the cyber compromat of Francis's karaoke at yesterday's Telegraph Christmas party? Have you seen that that video doing the rounds yet? I have not seen the compromat of Francis's karaoke performance at Telegraph Christmas party. This sounds, and you never will, Gareth. I have my ways. I have my sources. Whether or not you want me to see it, oh, I will. <laughs> Thank you very much, Gareth. Francis, would you like the very final word? Well, thanks, David, for humiliating me amongst our <laughs> listeners. Much appreciated. I'm, I'm dreading now that it's going to get shared on X. But I was rather proud. And for anyone wondering, it was the Beatles' Twist and Shout. And it had the room in ecstasy. Anyway, I've, it's been a while since I've had the chance to read some correspondence from a listener. And I've been wanting to read this one for some time. So I'll read that now. Dear Ukraine, the latest... I won't specify my name, but I'm Ukrainian, 25, living in the central part of the country. I've been an active listener of your podcast for about eight months. It's hard to keep track of the time because living here feels like a limbo. I've been meaning to write to you for ages. There are many Ukrainians listening to the podcast. Here's my story. On the day of the invasion, I was woken up by my parents saying Russia attacked us. Everyone was shocked but me. Of course, I didn't know for sure but had been watching some American news, so I had a picture of what might happen. At that time, I'd studied English for only about a year, and though it's bad to say it, the beginning of the war was a blessing in disguise for me, in a sense. I'd always dreamt about watching Western news, American, British, and it was a strong incentive to start, which I've been doing ever since. I want Ukraine to win 100%. Even though I have a medical condition that frees me from military service, sometimes I feel like one day I'll meet some men on the street, draft officers, and they'll ask about me. Every time I go for a walk so as not to go crazy about all this, I grow anxious. 
I have a feeling that one day I'll have to face it. Who knows what will happen? It's so infuriating when people start to talk about war fatigue. What fatigue? I'm so angry sometimes at people living comfortably in prosperous countries, travelling around the world, enjoying life, and they talk about fatigue. People here are begging for weapons so that the war is over. But many give us droplets and old weapons systems, with others pushing Russian talking points like Elon Musk. I and people here appreciate the efforts of some in the West sincerely helping us, but sometimes it feels as though the war is purposely being prolonged by not giving us enough and at the right time. All those promises made at the beginning of the war will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. What did it mean? I don't want my best years to be spent living in uncertainty without any chance for a better life. People in the West and around the world shouldn't only say for as long as it takes, but also mention one word, victory. Victory is what it takes for Ukraine and the world to not be fatigued and have stability and security for good. Your podcast is one of the last things I have not to get crazy from all this. Every day is a mental torture with no prospect of future. Thank you. Well, thank you. And to all Ukrainians who listen to us, our thoughts are very much with you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.com co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to dispatches a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox we also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast you can listen to this conversation live at 1 p.m london time each weekday on twitter spaces follow the telegraph on twitter so you don't miss it to our listeners on youtube Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.